Hey everyone, welcome to Above Board, the podcast about how to build a bootstrap business, digital privacy, and updates from our company, Fathom Analytics. I'm Paul Jarvis, designer and marketer. And I'm Jack Ellis, programmer and hype man. Follow along as we have candid discussions about what it means to run an ethical business and keep things always above board. And as always, you can learn more at usefathom.com. So usually this show is conversations and uh, witty-ish banter between myself and Jack. But today I am so, so, so very pleased to say that we have Julia Angwin, the editor-in-chief and founder of the publication called The Markup. Both Jack and I are huge fans of this newsroom and how they approach journalism. Julia is the author of Dragnet Nation, A Quest for Privacy, Security, and Freedom in the World of Relentless Surveillance. As well, Julia is just an all-around badass when it comes to telling the story of big tech and digital privacy. Let's dive in to the interview. All right, so the first question that we have for you is, can you let our listeners know I guess, what the markup is in a nutshell, and I guess why it exists as well, which I think is really interesting. Um, Yes, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Um, Yeah, the markup is a nonprofit newsroom that uses technology to investigate technology. So we have um, a focus on accountability journalism about how technology is impacting humans and society. And what we do is we have a staff that is half engineers and half journalists. So they do their investigations together because I believe that as journalists, we're outnumbered, outspent by all the corporate money that, um, and honestly, even by the government. And so we need to use every tool at our disposal. And I have sort of had my, my whole career felt that a lot of newsrooms are underutilizing computers and automation to help superpower their investigations. And so that's why I set up the markup because I had worked at great places, the Wall Street Journal, ProPublica, that had big data teams. And yet <laughs> I was sort of always overusing my allotment of data resources as a reporter. And <laughs> I, I realized that there's just such a demand um, but from readers and from policymakers for data to support your findings. It is just no longer true that you can write a story with three anecdotes and everyone will be like, yep, that's probably true, right? <laughs> it's just not, nobody believes that anymore about the media. And so we have to bring more to the table. And so we have to invest in bringing more data to the table. Uh, I like it. And I mean, that's what I like about about reading it is there is such a, a, such a focus on data. We're a data company. Jack and I are both really into that kind of thing. What got you? What brought? What got you to the place of starting the markup? I know you've written books on similar subjects, but what was kind of the impetus that brought you to this thing? Um, as far as you personally, like, what was the background for you to to create this? So you know, I'm a 
lapsed technologist. So I grew up in Silicon Valley in Palo Alto during sort of the personal computer revolution. So the 80s when computers went from the size of a room to the size of a desk. And I um, learned to program in fifth grade. My parents were both in software. And I honestly thought that I would go into software. I just, it didn't occur to me. I actually thought there were really only two fields, hardware and software. And I was definitely not a hardware person. (laughs) So I just had this mentality that this is what I would do. When I went to college and I studied math at University of Chicago, you know, you couldn't study computer science. They didn't consider it a real field. They still don't. Um, And I was programming in Lisp uh, at the time, (laughs) an adorable language. (laughs) And um, I fell in love with journalism. I started working on the college paper. I really enjoyed it. And I thought of journalism as proofs. You know, I was studying math and I loved proving things. And I actually realized that that is what journalism is at its best, is to try to prove things that are true in the world. Um, And so I basically decided to, quote, rebel against my tech background and go into journalism. And for a while, I just was a regular journalist. I worked in Washington, D.C., covering Congress, but eventually it became known that I was like the only person in the newsroom who knew how to use a computer. <laughs> and so I got swept into covering technology. I think I started covering technology in 1996 at the San Francisco Chronicle, right after Netscape went public. They were like, oh, you're a business reporter who knows how computers work. Come join us. Yeah. And so I've been writing about technology ever since. And I have found that that has been my competitive advantage as a journalist. Honestly, I can't code anymore. I honestly haven't coded since Lisp, but I do know something fundamental that I think a lot of people who aren't familiar with technology know, which is I know that it's not magic. I know that you can't just walk up to a programmer and say like, get me the, th- the, the data that does the thing, you know, and, and there's people who aren't familiar with it, just don't know how to ask the right questions of the technology. And so that's really been my superpower is knowing what I can and cannot ask of the system. And so I have begged, borrowed and stolen sort of programmer resources at the various newsrooms that I worked at. But ultimately, there wasn't a newsroom that existed that had that baked in where the programmers were actually part of the investigative team. And that's something very unique at the markup. The programmers do not report to a data editor. They don't live in a silo. They're not a service desk where you go and order data like a hamburger, which is often the case. And instead, they're just reporters. They have different skill sets than the traditional reporters who focus on human sources and public you know, records. But they work in a partnership with a traditional reporter, and they bring their skills and the uh, the reporter bring there, and together, I feel like we can do even better journalism than they could do separately. I like it. I like the the reference to can you just do this? As I have, my background is graphic design, and every time I see on TV shows, oh, enhance the resolution. Yeah. Uh, it's like, what? I want to. Yeah. It's just yeah. It. it I think it, it's good to kind of cut through that because I think a lot of what um what people think about technology. I think it's it can be harmful to consider it magic when it is not. Well, absolutely. And it gets the, that cuts both ways, right? It also means that people use technology as an answer. Like, okay, the reason you're not getting um, 
bail is because this technological risk assessment tool said you're risky, right? And people are willing to believe it because it's technology, it's complicated. And so that also animates what we investigate, right? We investigate how technology is used to obscure accountability. And so I think being deep in understanding technology allows us to understand its limitations and to really explore how it's being used in the world. That makes sense. Yeah. Can we talk a bit about the business model for the market? Because it's different. And I was actually talking to the two founders of a news organization called Capital B, um, which isn't out yet, but they're starting soon. And they're, they, they're starting this route, but you all have been doing this for a while where you are a nonprofit and there aren't ads. And when I look at your website, it doesn't yell at me for having my ad blocker turned on. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Can you explain how this business model, how you came to this business model, and then how it's working for you all, if you are, if you are able? Yeah, um, I think there's two things. One, journalism is increasingly moving towards a nonprofit model, because um, because honestly, technology took all their revenue. <laughs> so Silicon Valley, you know, invented behavioral advertising, which tracked people's behavior and sold that to advertisers. Journalism had previously been selling their audience as, okay, here's a high quality audience. You're going to want to be in front of them, but not tracking them, right? Like, so the Wall Street Journal, where I worked, they sold their ads for hundreds of thousands of dollars because that was the only way you could reach a middle manager, BMW guy, driving guy with golf clubs. Now you don't need to go to the journal for that. You can follow him around on the internet. And so honestly, journalism, whether it declares itself nonprofit or not, is steadily moving towards not that profitable. And so, you know, ProPublica really plowed this ground when they, when the, you know, the um, editor in chief of the Wall Street Journal who had worked for Paul Steiger left and founded it, it was like a proof of concept. And it really did prove the concept. And so it paved the way for places like myself and Texas Tribune and a whole world of nonprofit newsrooms have sprung up under the idea that you can do particularly accountability investigative journalism that's so expensive and so lengthy and really not well served by the commercial model. So that is part of the reason that we're a nonprofit. Another piece of it is the special piece where we don't have any ads because there are lots of nonprofit initiatives that do have ads. And we don't because one of our primary coverage areas is what we call the data exploitation economy, which, you know, I think other people call ad tech or Silicon Valley's business model. Um, But we write about that and we don't want to participate in it, right? Because actually so much of what we do is calling to account the bad behavior of all of these insidious technologies that are used to track you without your knowledge. And so seeing as we're basically raising money from donors who want to support our mission, it felt like a way to align ourselves with our readers and convince them honestly to donate, right? Because they know we're on their side. Yeah, I, I like it. I think that that makes uh, a ton of sense. You might have already answered this in the way you were speaking about the, the programmers working as, as journalists with the with the journalist journalists, but you have um, listed on your site that you, that you that you employ or deploy maybe the the markup method um, in, in your approach to coverage. Um, can you speak a little to how yeah. that works and why that's important in the coverage that you provide? Yeah, we call it the markup method because it's. Um 
it's basically a low, scientific method light. So essentially, our idea is that we should start as a small newsroom with limited resources and expensive resources, right? Programmers are expensive. Technology is expensive. Um, investigative journalism is expensive. We need to pick our topics correctly. Because the truth is you can kind of investigate anything, right? Anything is investigatable. I can investigate like why, you know, why my son, you know, doesn't put his socks away, right? That's investigation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we see ourselves as accountability journalism on behalf of the public and that that's what our donors want from us. And so we start with a hypothesis, which is what is the thing that we can test to see if it's true? For instance, um, one of our investigations was the hypothesis of, is Google prioritizing its own products and search results higher than other products? And that's something that we can answer and is really helpful to the public to know. Um, and it requires actually a lot of computational resources. And so it's something that we feel like helps us frame our questions right. Because if you just run around thinking, what can I investigate? You can end up with really low hanging fruit and we need to pick really important topics. And it's also a way to hedge against sort of the myth of objectivity, right? Which is that journalism has, I think, mostly given up on the idea of objectivity, but it still lingers, right? This idea that we're just a neutral force and we present both sides and that both sidesism has really been exploited, right? And people have gamified it to present some pretty non-evidence-based things as like an alternative reality. And we don't want to be that. We want to be like, no, we actually are taking, we're scientists, we are testing a hypothesis, but if there's evidence to support our hypothesis, we're going to declare it true with limitations. And so that is a different way to engage with the public, which is to say, we're really clear about what we, each, what we experimented with. We're really clear about what we found. We're really clear about what we didn't find and what the holes might be. And I think that's a way to build trust in a world where there is a lot of distrust in journalism. What do you do with disproven hypotheses? I know it's something that I really was just thinking about this morning. Um, we have such good um, hypotheses that we've had to discard that the null finding is actually interesting. And I have been trying to figure out what is a way to display those, publish those, because mm-hmm. um, they, they're they not really interesting to the average person, but there is sort of like a niche of people who might be interested. And I have wanted to build some sort of little like resting ground, <laughs> a little graveyard or something. Yeah. Um, but I, ha- I haven't quite figured out because the The thing is about those findings is that we haven't tested them um, for robustness as much. And so it feels a little risky to put them out there without like fully examining them. Because like if we test hypothesis and then we see that it's not true and we don't really spend more time on it. And what if we just miss something? So I haven't quite figured out, but there are really interesting things that do come up in that way. And it's a constant um, source of annoyance to me that I haven't figured out how to display those. (laughs) You do your own research, your journalists do the research, but you also build tools that other people can use to do their own research. So a great example is the Spotlight tool, which has just been everywhere. That really went viral. And I I think someone told us recently, you have added um, Flock detection, the Google FLOC thing, detection into it or something like that. So you're really kind of updating this tool as as well as just launching it 
you know, initially. Um, so that's an impressive tool. Um, what brings people to the markup? You know, you, there are all these places they can go. Why do they choose the markup? Such a good question. Um, we don't know why people come to the market because we don't track them. <laughs> so we don't even good know answer. who comes or how many people come. Yeah. Um, we know a little bit. Um, you know, as you know, it's unavoidable to know some things about your audience, but we do um, we do discard um, data that we think would be too personally revealing because we want to have a commitment to our readers that we're not tracking them. And I don't think people should be sort of followed while they're reading. You know, that is something very sensitive um, about your life, what news you read, um, particularly in countries with um, repressive regimes that can be used to put you in jail. So we try to be really sensitive about that. So we don't really know. But um, I will say that we have found, um, we sort of experimented with this idea of building tools. and have found they're really popular and it's surprising to us. So Blacklight is our tool that is a forensic privacy analysis tool in real time. So essentially when you visit it, you type a URL in, we spin up some browsers in the cloud and run some tests on that URL at that moment. And what we do is an instant analysis. Is it doing fingerprinting? At that moment, is it so how many cookies is it setting at that moment? Is it doing session recording, which is essentially logging your scroll and mouse movements? And those are things that you can maybe find other ways to test for, but not the normal person <laughs> cannot do that. And we built for ourselves. We actually wanted to do an investigation to see, you know, what was the state of privacy on the web. But once we had gotten so far into building it, it just felt like it would make sense for us to release it to readers. And it also fit with something that I think is important in journalism, which is, especially with investigative journalism, it can be very depressing to read, right? You go to an investigative news site and it's like, oh, this terrible thing is happening. That terrible thing is happening. And there's not often a way for you to do anything about it. And the tools give people a little bit of power, right? So a lot of people write to us and say, I put in my kid's school or my employer into this tool. I saw that we had all these trackers and I went to the management and I said, what are you doing? And they said, oh, we had no idea this was here. Yeah. Get down. Yeah. And that's something that they can do. That's like mini investigative reporting. And what I love about that is it really allows people to have the joy of discovery that we have as investigative reporters. The reason we're in it is it's so fun <laughs> when you discover something, right? And so by allowing our readers to have that sort of moment of discovery and aha, Actually, I feel like it's been really powerful in terms of impact and also just in terms of making people really um, feel good about the markup and wanting to come read our stuff. People love that. And I apologize for calling it Spotlight. I'm apparently Appleified my head. Um, <laughs> well, there's the Boston Globe Spotlight investigative team uh, and the right, famous okay, movie. Okay. So there's <laughs> lots of reasons to think of Spotlight. <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking at the markup and I'm, I'm thinking of it like a business. So in, in our business, we have different funnels, right? We obviously don't do. Um, paid advertising on Facebook. What, what, is, what are your channel? I mean, obviously, without revealing too much about what you do, if it's secret, but like, what are your channels? Because are you just content marketing? Is that pretty much how the business grows? Like, do you publish the content and people just pick it up and it just goes viral? Because I see your your content all the time. Like, it regularly enters my feed. Oh, is it great. just? 
is it just your audience is just spreading the content or do you do anything in particular that you, you're willing to share? We don't buy ads to spread. We don't. Um, we do republishing agreements. So we, um, and we also have creative commons license. So people can, are free to republish our work. And that's actually one way that we really want to make sure we widely distribute our work. Um, because we're a nonprofit. We're a public service. Our donors donate to us because they want this information to be out available to the public. They're not supporting us because they want it to be a paywall, you know? Um, and so we try to make it as available as possible. And so our model is mostly organic though, right? Like people have to pick it up and republish it or, um, or share it with their friends. We don't have a paid uh, content distribution strategy. Nice. I just have one more question, Paul. I'm just curious, what brings the reporters to the markup? How do you attract them? Because you've got an incredible, I took a look at your team. Your team is a seasoned team. These aren't just (laughs) entry-level reporters. They've come from huge places. Yeah, we are, um, you know, we're a good job in journalism, right? Like we uh, have a strong mission. We're not um, in a kind of constantly collapsing profit margin environment with rounds of layoffs, which is unfortunately pretty common in most newsrooms. And we have this incredible resource of working with these amazing data journalists. And so I think for a lot of journalists, that's incredible. Like, are you kidding me? I could do, I could just get, I could work with this person the whole time and I wouldn't have to always be like trying to get in line at the data desk where I work. Um, And so we are lucky. We have really um, great people and I'm hoping we'll continue to attract great people as we continue to grow cautiously in the next year or so. I can't think that's, um, yeah, it does sound like a a great job. Have you noticed, I guess, a a shift in in awareness? Obviously, folks like us and and, and you care about big tech and digital privacy and that but have you noticed a shift in mainstream normal internet type folks around digital privacy and is there anything that you think might have been the catalyst for that whether it's cambridge analytica scandal whether it's something else but what have you noticed i guess in terms of um uh, mainstream awareness for for the types of things that you write about like digital privacy and big tech yeah i think um It's so interesting because when I started writing about privacy in 2010, um, people were like, what are you talking about? That seems (laughs) whatever, who cares, right? And um, it definitely felt like I was outside of the mainstream. Um, Things changed with Snowden, I think. Um, That really woke up people to the power of surveillance, right? The fact that all of those different things could be tracked and that NSA was secretly tracking our phone calls, which turned out to be unconstitutional. Like it just, it was, I think a big wake up call, but it was very much a government spying situation. And then I think Cambridge Analytica added the corporate layer, which was like, oh, I previously thought it was somewhat innocuous that Facebook knew everything about me because all it meant was I was going to see ads for the shoes that I wanted. But now if it means that there's a company out there trying to do political persuasion that is literally using that information to target my psychological vulnerabilities, which is what Cambridge Analytica promised to do, whether they delivered on that, I think is an open question, but certainly the fact that they promised that made people feel vulnerable. And it 
also raised the question that was that was really never answered about 2016, which was how much did that matter? How much did the Russian interference matter? We don't know. But I think that uncertainty sort of heightened everybody's feeling. And then the actual fact that every single day some data breach, ransomware event yeah. happens, I think has made it a mainstream issue, I think. Now, I am 100% biased because I care about it. And so yes. it's possible I'm seeing it through my own lens. But I definitely hear it more and more from people who I think previously were not that interested in it, that they really are interested in this and concerned about it. Do you think this awareness has done good or made things better in any way? Or is it just aware? Is it just awareness? I think um, you need awareness before it can have a solution, and so I think it's a step towards um, improvement. I think that the fact that there are strong privacy laws in California um, is amazing and really recent, um, and that is going to impact the rest of the nation, no matter what. Um, other states are either going to meet that standard or go lower, and then the federal government will probably try to harmonize. And so we will end up with some sort of privacy standard, most likely in this country, which um, until recent, uh, which we are currently an outlier, right? Most um, countries of our size and sophistication and financial wherewithal have a baseline privacy law, and we don't. So it looks like we're heading in that direction. Now, is it going to be all good? No, we have um, corporate interests have so much say in the writing of laws here that, you know, it's very possible we can have a pretty weak law or even a law that sort of makes things slightly worse. And so I do worry about that. Um, But I tend to be an optimist in general, sometimes irrationally so. And so I have hope. Do you think, do you hear, I guess, do you hear from people still like that this, that all of this doesn't matter? Like, yeah, I'm being tracked, but I don't care if they see the shoes. I have nothing to hide. I'm not selling illegal Elon Musk NFTs on the dark web. Like, do you still, do you still hear this? And and if you do, do you have um, like a a counter or um, or something that you employ to teach why that could be problematic? Yeah, absolutely. I still hear that all the time. Um, my husband is the main proponent of it. I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, I think, uh, and what I always say is actually you are, you are unaware of the number of things that are illegal. (laughs) There are so many laws (laughs) that you are probably violating. Um, starting with jaywalking and, you know, moving to like owning lobsters of too large a size. I mean, there are so many laws out there and, we rely as a society on the on the fact that not all those laws are actually enforced. If they were, actually, it would be almost impossible for anyone to do anything. And so what you then have to acknowledge is we live in a world of prosecutorial discretion, right? So police officers, prosecutors have a lot of discretion about who they will enforce the law against. And often we know it's against vulnerable and marginalized communities. And so when people say to me, I have nothing to hide, I say back to them, actually, what you're telling me is that you have enough privilege that you believe you will not be subject to prosecutorial discretion. And I'm happy for you. But I think you should think about people who are not in that position. That is a good point. 
Yeah. And it was interesting earlier, you mentioned um, countries where they have repressive regimes. You have onion links on your website, which I thought was fantastic. Like, who does that? But I <laughs> yeah. understand why you do that. If they've got people that are reading this stuff, they want to keep that private. We have a very large links. international audience from what we can tell. And um, we just want people to be safe. <laughs> yeah, that makes total sense. So Google is... Um, marketing that they're focusing on privacy and various other things do you think that any of big tech is actually doing good stuff is anyone actually looking at this and improving because google you know we care about privacy and then they launch flock and we took flock for a spin i know you took flock for a spin we went on some mental health websites and we watched how our cohort changed and we had it side by side it's mind-blowing so yeah. is anyone actually doing any good in big tech well, I mean, it's it's worth noting that the reason Google did that was because they were boxed into a corner by the other web browsers, right? Like when I started writing about this in 2010, none of the web browsers had any privacy protections, right? Yeah. Actually, now Google's the last one without default third-party cookie blocking. So they had to launch something to make it seem like they were doing something. So that's what Flock is. And so I think that's improvement. Is it a total win? No, <laughs> but it means that they're the last one standing and they have to at least make sounds like they care about privacy. <laughs> do you think they can do anything? I mean, they're an advertising company, profits off of our, what we do on the web. What can they do to win here? Can they even win? Well, I mean, they could, yeah, improve it, right? Like they don't, um, Google Chrome is a different product than Google ad services. And honestly, still most of the revenue comes from search, which is contextual and not behavioral advertising. And it's a great powerhouse, right? Like I'd be perfectly happy myself to run that business and have no other businesses, right? So I think that is just a question of, well, do you want to be the global giant who controls all of the world and everything that everyone does in it? Or are you running a business that's awesome and has massive profit margins on search advertising and you restrain yourself in other realms? The, those, those seem like, that seems like a fine option to me. I'm obviously not um, probably cut out to be, you know, a tech trillionaire. <laughs> and, and I'm happy to sound naive here, but there's a, you know, they have a um, capitalism, you know, shareholders, this kind of thing. They're a big public company. If they chose to cut out certain things, they can be sued by the shareholder, right? So they haven't actually got the power to change or have they? Because they have to, the shareholder comes first, right? Yes. So can they so there's, I mean, this is the problem with um, the Wall Street model for public companies, right? It does uh, prioritize short-term growth over all other things. And that has led to all sorts of distortions in our economy and our, our life. Um, but it's also worth noting that the founders own, um, you know, a controlling stake in Google. And so they still have uh, the ability to flout Wall Street if they wanted to, right? Or they could take it private. I mean, so there are, they, they have mechanisms, you know, Facebook, similarly, Mark Zuckerberg kept um, controlling shares. So th these are companies that are somewhat public, but somewhat not, right? Still controlled by their founders. And so they have a lot more discretion than a normal public company. Good point. Yeah. I mean, DuckDuckGo is proof as well of a company that doesn't run um, targeted at, and they may, I think they, they published that they made $120 million dollars um, in revenue. Yeah. I mean, that seems fine. I'm You know, look, I mean, obviously that's naive, right? Like, so yeah. Google's not going to just like abandon everything, but it's just like, I put it out there as a provocative point because 
we have this idea that it's set this way, that the world has to be this way. And we broke up AT&T, we broke up Standard Oil. In the, in the past, when companies have gotten too big and we don't feel like they're serving the public interest, we, um, the people, have enabled our representatives to take steps. And I think, obviously, right now, Google is facing a lot of scrutiny, right? They have multiple antitrust lawsuits against them. And so I think we are at a moment, a moment of reckoning where actually we as a society are trying to decide are we willing to live with it the way it is? Yeah. Arizona's suing Google, I saw, um, as of last week, for tracking location data when you have location data turned off. Oh, come yeah. on. Yeah. I'm not, I mean, I'm not surprised, but it's nice to see that, that there is um, a lawsuit from a state yeah. um, against, against In, Google. Infinite resources. <laughs> against infinite resources. Yes, that's a very good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So what's uh what scares you about the future of technology? I mean, you sound you sound like you're optimistic, so maybe you're not too scared. But like, what oh, are you I about mean, right now? I'm still scared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, I guess I feel like um, these are companies that have power, global power, in a way that we've never seen before. That. Literally, there hasn't been an entity in human history um, that had this much power, I think, maybe the Roman Empire for a few years. I don't even know. I don't think so. Because you think about like Facebook and Google, they literally decide in every country in the world what is acceptable speech. That is their decision. They can comply with the government. They cannot comply with the government. They make different decisions, different times. They have their own metrics. That is such power that it's hard to understand how it gets reined in, right? Yeah, if they've got power at the top. Yeah, that makes sense. So that scares me. Uh, I guess we've kind of been talking about both sides here, the the government side and, and the corporate side. And it sounds like the corporate side might have more power, but the government side can has has the ability to put people in jail. Yeah. So are you more nervous about government or corporate or does it kind of go back and forth or is it like two different types of fear of equal levels? <laughs> I mean, I think they go hand in hand, right? Like, cause the government has never, no government that I know has ever been able to restrain itself from dipping its hand into the corporate mm. pile of data, right? Cause they have the power to do it and they will do it and it happens all the time. And yeah. so Ultimately, when you give these corporations that much power, you also give governments sort of incredible amounts of power. And that is really terrifying because, like you said, they have the power to literally put you, you know, to incarcerate you, to remove your your autonomy as a human. (laughs) And so that is a power that you really want to make sure is fully restrained. And, you know, it's been a pretty disturbing set of revelations in the past few weeks about all of the people that the Donald Trump administration was obtaining phone records on that it seems like were pretty much vendettas, not truly national security risks. And that's exactly the nightmare scenario that people like me worry about is that, you know, we would sort of tiptoe our way into a police state while still believing that we're not. 
Do you think the government will ever regulate or any government will regulate big tech, given that what you just said, that they they like to be able to use that data for their own agendas? Like, do you think that that's even possible at this point then? You know what's interesting is, despite everything, the U.S. regulates its use of domestic surveillance more than pretty much any other peer nation. Um, we are... We have more rules around it and more um, processes. Oftentimes those get violated. We There's a scandal, this and that. It's not perfect in any way, but it is way more than countries like Germany where you have to report to the police when you move, right? So like you literally have to go and say, here's my new address and wow. within a certain number of days. Um, and so w- we sometimes lose perspective that we do have one of, because of our freedom loving in the U S which has its downsides. Cause you know, there's a lot of gun violence that arises because yeah. of that freedom loving, but it also does mean we constitutionally are not a people who are willing to accept um, domestic surveillance. And we have tried many times as citizens to push back on it and been moderately successful. It's concerning though, because as surveillance gets easier and more pervasive, it's it becomes harder to regulate. It's just sort of everywhere. If there are sensors everywhere, um, and you're everything you do is sort of already being picked up by a weather sensor and a breath sensor and a, you know, whatever, you know, regulating all that is a, like a real challenge. Yeah, I mean, when you have to apply software updates to your fridge at this yeah. point. <laughs> I'm hanging on to my 20-year-old car because it doesn't have any, you know, update software in it. My, drive this into the ground, man. Yeah, my <laughs> wife is doing the exact same thing with with her vehicle. I mean, I drive a Tesla, but <laughs> I, I understand. <laughs> yeah, I understand that that's definitely problematic, but her vehicle has no computer. Yeah. I guess to, to finish this off, I want to I want to ha- have a little thought experiment with you. So I'm really curious um, w- what your thoughts are going to be on this. So say you were a, a magic wand is waved and because uh, it's a thought experiment, there's magic wands and you were put in charge of regulating tech as a as a government regulator or and you can you can pick one or the other. So you're either a government regulator in charge of making rules for big tech or you're the ceo of a big tech zuckerberg's out you're in what oh, would God. you what, a terrible <laughs> job. <laughs> what would be what would be the first thing that you would do what would be what would be the thing that you would first employ to bring about less of this hellscape that we talked about and more of the optimism that we talked about as far as making things slightly or immeasurably better for the future I'm going to cheat a little bit and be kind of general, but I would say that I believe strongly in liability as a tool for changing behavior. Um, I think the best ways to regulate are to install liability that creates insurance markets who then come and regulate risk. And that mechanism in general has worked really well in environmental controls, which I feel like is a very similar issue, right? You have the sign of data breach, which is like a pollution leak. You have um, vulnerable communities that are targeted. And and we have used liability in really creative and interesting ways to address those challenges. One thing that I think 
feels probably a very aspirational, but think about Superfund sites. That is an incredible liability mechanism. As you may or may not know, when they find some sort of uh, environmental pollution and they can't attribute the source, they actually come up with a list, the EPA, of possible sources and make them share liability and share. Yeah. And so there have been some really interesting mechanisms that require cleanup and incentivize against future pollution. And I think that that kind of approach is similar to what we need with data because it's a very similar problem. Pollution is hard to attribute source, hard to attribute um, your actual cancer to it, um, and yet is a collective problem that ruins everybody's life. And that is what I think that sort of our current data economy is too. You can't really say that you didn't get the job because of some data. You can't really say who had your data that led to you not getting it. But all of us are harmed by living in a world where you can't trust anything because you know that your data isn't safe. And so I feel these are similar problems and we solved pollution. Okay, we missed a few things, carbon, but we did actually have our rivers on fire in the past, we did solve some of those things. We did it with multiple types of liability. We had strict liability, like Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, which were just like, no, you cannot do more than this. We had actually collective action, which was like recycling and picking up dog poop, which is like humans getting involved. And then we had public shaming where we, the EPA would publish lists. And then we had this collective liability of Superfund. I think it would take a similar kind of array of solutions to help solve this problem. That makes a lot of sense. And I think about the the charity that I most donate to where I live in British Columbia in Canada is a, is a charity that sues um, people for uh, breaches of environmental protocols. And, and they're called EcoJustice because yeah. they basically, their, bus- their business model as a charity is to just sue, pe- sue people who are violating laws. And I, I, I donate to- there something like that for data. Yeah. Oh my God. And then the insurance markets would come in and they would say to Target or whoever, like, guess what? You're just not allowed to have these unpatched servers anymore. Either you patch or we don't insure you. And like, that would just raise the game for everyone, right? We're getting close with that. There's there's a chap called Max Strems in, yeah. in the year. Yeah, you're familiar with him. So he's suing Facebook. He's suing, he's suing Google. And I think he's won. Recently, he won on his, on his Strems 2 ruling. That's that's a start, right? We're we're kind of moving towards what you're describing potentially. Yeah, Europe has allowed a better legal environment for challenges like that in some ways. Um, his challenge was more about the NSA, as I understand it, but um, he has also a suit against Facebook. Um, but I I think that generally, I'm a big believer in litigation. <laughs> it's really worked well for our country. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Well, Jack, was there anything else or? No, nothing. Okay. Well, Julia, thank you so much for joining Thanks, us. This Jack was fun. and I have been looking forward to this for, for a while now. So I'm so glad that we can make this happen. So glad we can share this with, with all of our listeners. And I know a lot of people that use our product are, are, are fans. So this is going to be really good. So I thank you very much for your time today. 